I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. This weekend marks 62 years since the closure of the border between east and western sectors of Berlin ahead of the following year's threat of a nuclear war between Washington and Moscow. Today, while the Global South prepares for the BRICS summit in South Africa, fighting in Ukraine sees the USA in an arguable crisis with both China and Russia, let alone most of the world, as represented by population at the UN, which refused to condemn what Russia sees as the existential threat of NATO. Published shortly after the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan is a new book, Military History for the Modern Strategist, America's Major Wars Since 1861. Its author, Dr. Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow and Director of Research in Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution and former Advisory Board member at the CIA, joins me now from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much, Mike, for uh, coming on. Just before we get to the book, and I've got to say, it, your book makes it very hard for journalists because the scope is massive. Uh, as co-director of the Brookings Africa Security Initiative, your quick thoughts on events in Niger. My understanding is it's the largest CIA base in the world, uh, Agadez Base 201. I don't know, 500 billion? How many millions of dollars have been spent of the U.S. public money on it? And uh, an American-trained uh, soldier now runs Niger. Well, greetings. And you certainly are right to dramatize the significance of the counterterrorism cooperation with Niger, including the base. It probably is a, at this point, multi-billion dollar base in terms of overall investment, but I'm not sure on the exact numbers. We also know that roughly 20% of all American troops in Africa are in Niger, which is obviously a hugely disproportionate number in a continent with 54 countries to have such a concentration. And in the absence of the French being able to work like they did previously in Mali, this has become even more important given the prevalence of ISIS and other extremist groups throughout the broader Sahel. So yes, this really brings to a focal point why the United States government has avoided calling this a coup so far, even though we all know that it is, why the United States government is still hoping to pull a rabbit out of the hat and get some kind of a conciliatory process that gets President Bazoum back in office, or at least in some kind of a power-sharing coalition. Uh, you know, the odds seem pretty high against that. It is striking to see just how forward-leaning Nigeria has been in this situation. And I admire the Nigerians for that role. Although the government lost the battle in the Nigerian parliament to intervene. They haven't invaded. There you go. Exactly. So it's not really clear what Nigeria would or could do anyway, uh, short of really being willing to risk an all-out war, which pres presumably is not really what Nigeria needs right now or wants. So this is very much a work in progress. And... Uh, it is not a good thing because in, there are situations around the world where being a think tanker, I can say, you know, that coup doesn't look all bad to me because the government it got rid of was clearly corrupt or ineffectual or, in, you know, inciting violence or what have you. But this is not one of those cases. There was not all that much negative to say about the incumbent when he was deposed. Well, he even his election was doubted, in fairness. Uh, altogether, and of course the countries neighboring it see it as a great coup. We saw the pictures of the stadium. Uh, they've thrown out an imperialist French-American lackey, arguably. But of course Victoria Newland from the Biden administration... A couple, a couple of the countries. Mo most of the countries around do not share that view, as you know, and most of the countries around consider this to be a very, very insidious and dangerous trend in West Africa. We've also seen affect Mali and Burkina Faso, where you have a small group of officers for selfish reasons taking it upon themselves 
to throw democracy to the winds and then perhaps bring in the Wagner group and create essentially uh, you know, a, a thug regime. Well, we don't, we don't know whether they're selfish. We know the governments that were there previously were arguably selfish because of the amount of poverty in those countries. But to your book, I mean, Victoria Newland, famous for that phone call uh, in the 2014 coup in, uh, in Ukraine. She's been to Niger, of course. Uh, why is it a good book, a well, good time for a book uh, about uh, military history? encompassing the Civil War, World War One, World War II, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Palestine, Vietnam, Korea, all of this in such a, such a small book. Uh, why is it a good time for this book right now? There's not too much on Palestine, but you're right. I do, I do set up some, uh, some of the conflicts in the Middle East that even if the United States was not directly involved, set the context for the wars that we were later involved in ourselves. So in that sense, I do speed my way through the 67 war, the 73 war, et cetera. But thank you. Thank you for having me on. Let me give two answers to your question. The first answer is very selfish. I'll admit that I'm selfish, which is that this was a good time for me to write the book because I wrote it primarily during the COVID shutdown. And when you're trying to write history, and historians know this better than I do, because I'm not a real historian. Uh, I, I dabbled in this history. I've been an admirer and consumer of history my whole life, but I am not a full-time professional historian who does archival research. But you need to be able to just sit with your thoughts and almost imagine yourself back in the time period. If you're gonna do anything like engaging writing that captures the feel, captures the motives, captures you know what was really uh, driving people's actions at that time and so for me the right time to write it was when i could pull out of my busy life and spend just three or four five months just thinking about the american civil war and doing almost nothing else except going for walks with my family and you know feeding the dog uh, and that's the way history i think to some extent needs to be written needs to be researched and that's my selfish answer. In terms of why it's relevant to today's world, well, I only wish I had gotten a copy of Vladimir Putin before he invaded Ukraine because uh, the, the book was still being completed at that point. And the pr problem that Putin exemplified or demonstrated, which we also had in the United States with the Iraq war, is that wars almost never go as quickly or easily as the aggressor or the attacker thinks. And there is always a temptation to believe that your new technologies your brilliant generals and their fancy war plans, the martial virtues of your own country relative to your potential adversary, that these things will combine to give you a path to a smash down, knock down victory on short order. And when most countries go to war, that's what they want and that's what they expect. But the history of major conflicts is almost always one of protracted war where outcomes are not at all what were expected, often become very uncertain for a protracted period during the conflict itself. And Putin should have known better, just like Donald Rumsfeld should have known better in 2003, to believe that he could decisively defeat uh, you know, a substantial military and country with a three or five or 10 or 20 day operation. That would have been the best benefit. And it's gonna be relevant in the future if anyone in China or the United States somehow deludes themselves into thinking they could defeat the other side with the right AI-empowered advanced military that has all these fancy gadgets and a brilliant war plan. You know, history tells you. Well, I don't think Russia's think using way. all the advanced warfare. I mean, they're not doing anything like the Iraq war you were supported in uh, hitting uh, ministerial targets in Baghdad. In fact, surely uh, one point of, that you raise there is. Uh, uh, the famous Afghan proverb of uh, uh, to the Americans that uh, you may have all the tanks, uh, we have the time. 
The same with Putin, isn't it? I mean, they're just slowly yeah. uh, exhausting, uh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands dead. You've met Zelensky. Uh, hundreds of thousands dead in this war so far, and Russia's just dug yeah. in there. And I think the initial point of the uh, move anyway, wasn't it, to protect Donetsk and Luhansk after Putin did so little, to arguably, to save the 14,000 that were shelled by NATO-backed troops since 2014? Well, first of all, I think you're right that Putin has a strategy now where he is trying to win through attrition and perseverance. And he wonders if maybe American politics or some other development in the West will give him that victory, or at least give him the 20% or 18% of Ukraine that he currently holds. So this is Ulysses Grant. If, going but, back to but, your book, but, but, Putin but, has but, Ulysses but, Grant. But in, but in fairness, that's, that's not what Putin wanted at first. And he did want to use shock and awe to take down Kyiv and the government of Zelensky. Well, and he didn't really even send an aircraft to bomb Kiev. He didn't send warplanes to level Kiev. He had an attempted operation trying to seize the airfield in the north. He had a 40-mile-long convoy of, of vehicles trying to descend upon Kyiv. And he also had commandos in the area and cyber warriors trying to bring down the Ukrainian networks. It may have been badly done. I'm not saying it was a good plan, but he definitely was targeting Kyiv. And the Russia could have leveled Kiev, couldn't it? Well, you're making it. You can level it tomorrow. I mean, it's choosing not to. You only get to make you only get to make one point at a time. If you want me to respond intelligently, your first point was that Putin did not really seek a rapid overthrow of Kiev, and that's wrong. He did seek a rapid overthrow of Kiev. It may have been a bad plan, but it was very seriously attempted through a combination of airborne attacks on the airfield, cyber attacks on the networks, a 40-mile-long troop convoy descending on Kyiv from the north, and assassination teams in the capital. And he thought he would pull it off. You mean they wanted to Ukraine assassinate Zelensky? Right. Wait, I, I just, I, it's very difficult to uh, compute that anyone in Washington, D.C. thinks today that if Russia really wanted to do what you said it did, it, it couldn't do it. I mean, the point about Russia is obviously it didn't want to alienate the whole, their brothers and sisters in Ukraine, a sisterly country. They couldn't do what the United States did to Baghdad or uh, Tripoli in Libya or uh, in, in other countries as they have done, let alone Vietnam, say. But anyway, I mean, that, okay, that's that's your view. I mean, I don't that's know. Right. See, I, I don't have the Putin a, battle plan. There's 100,000 dead. There's 100,000 dead Ukrainians, most of them dead from shelling of apartment buildings. So I'm not quite sure I see the nuance. Oh, so they're not uh, soldiers. Do... You, you understand that right. there are 100,000 civilians in Ukraine that have been killed. Half and half, roughly speaking, in Ukraine. But the, the point is, let, let me find a point of agreement that you and I have here, which is that at this point, Putin has settled into a war of a slow, long grind, where he still seems to think that either he has the upper hand or he just can't seem to find a graceful way out or both, and he's gonna be patient. He's sitting on top of an economy that's barely declined in GDP since the war began, uh, even though there is obviously great suffering throughout Russia in terms of families who have lost loved ones, and there is a lack of access to Western capital and technology that will hurt future generations of Russians. Right now, Putin probably thinks that time is on his side. So I think you're probably right about that. But that's his second strategy. That was not his first strategy. Russia has overtaken Germany in GDP, PPP, and the latest figures. Uh, in terms of the world's um, uh, bigger economies. But you've applauded uh, the CIA for predicting 
Russia's move into Ukraine, but faulted them on forecasting that the war would last a few days, presumably because they thought the strategy was the strategy you were referring to, which, you know, I don't have the uh, uh, Kremlin's plans in front of me to see what their, what their uh, ambitions were, what their targets were. So you want, on top of the $220 billion given to Zelensky, you now want Biden to give him F-16 warplanes. Well, yeah, but I'm in the uh, ironic position, perhaps, of not really thinking that will turn things radically around. So I'm at the point where, yes, I favored sending in the tanks sooner than we did, uh, because I think if we had given Ukraine tanks by early winter, they might have been ready to launch this offensive by spring rather than summer. But we've all seen the results even of a summer offensive, which are not particularly compelling. And the same thing, I believe, will continue to be true. I think we owe Ukraine a fair chance to take back as much of its territory as it can. But by this point next year, I think there is a very high likelihood that we will have to encourage Ukraine to consider an alternative strategy and that decisively defeating Russia to seize and regain all of its territory may be morally justifiable, but is militarily unrealistic. But I can't make that case now, in fairness, until we give Zelensky a chance to use a combined arms maneuver operation with F-16s and other kinds of weapons like that. So that's the one piece he still doesn't have that I think we should give him. And I think that will be what happens in the course of the next few months. This offensive will play itself out. We'll get into the cold weather. We'll have a debate. Countries, Some countries are already offering F-16s, as you know. We'll decide how many. We'll wish the Ukrainians well next spring. They'll do their best to win back some territory. We'll see how the U.S. presidential election plays into this, and then we'll have to take stock in a year. So I hope you have me back then. Dr. Michael O'Hannon, I'll stop you there. More from the Senior Fellow and Director of Research and Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution after this short break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Dr. Michael O'Hanlon, Senior Fellow and Director of Research in Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution and former Advisory Board Member at the CIA. Mike, you were saying uh, in the part one about how you think uh, Biden should send the F-16 warplanes now, immediately. What could, uh, what could the U.S. do to prevent uh, Zelensky using the F-16 planes uh, against Moscow? Obviously, uh, according, if you listen to the Pentagon or the State Department briefings, they uh, just look nervous generally as these, uh, well, what Russia calls terror attacks, because they're clearly not of any military significance, these drone attacks on civilian structures in Moscow. Uh, surely the policy you're advocating is F-16s attacking Moscow, American F-16s. Well, Zelensky is obviously very strong-willed and patriotic towards his own country and wonders why he can't fight back the same way Russia is fighting against him. And that's why we do see apparently these occasional Ukrainian drone strikes now against Russian cities. But I think President Zelensky is also well aware that he depends, as you put it just a minute ago, on the $220 billion in assistance from the West he's received over the last 18 months. And he can't jeopardize this at a time when Republicans in the United States in particular are questioning whether aid to Ukraine should continue at its current level or even continue at all. I don't know that President Zelensky wants to play the Russian roulette game of actually doing something we've explicitly asked him not to do. And we certainly can cut off the pipeline of spare parts and other support for those F-16s were he to start using them in that regard. So that plus the fact that F-16 attacks against Russian cities are probably not going to end the war themselves anyway, I think will be a compelling enough reason that Zelensky would use them on the battlefield. But 
you know, I, I think he's proven so far that, generally speaking, he's a man of his word, a man of great moral courage. Wait, so Washington and, uh, controls, you just said, Washington controls Zelensky. And I should say his patriotism is arguably in question, given he's banned the opposition and cancelled elections next year and closed down all opposition newspapers. But you're saying Washington would stop sending spare parts and things if Zelensky didn't take his orders from Washington. I didn't say orders, and I didn't say we control him. I say we influence him, and he knows where he got that $220 billion. And he knows that President Biden is very serious about not risking direct escalation with Russia that could involve the United States. So I think the Ukrainians so far, uh, despite these occasional drone attacks, have been quite disciplined in how they've applied military force, certainly far more disciplined than the Russians. And I well, think- Drone you know, attacks on the Kremlin. <laughs> on bedrooms and, and apartment blocks there. I mean, I, I do want to get back to, to the book. Are you watching um, Are you watching what's going on in this war? There are, there are tens of thousands of Ukrainians dead who have been shelled in their apartment buildings. There are virtually zero yeah, but Russians. Ho Chi Minh, let's, I mean, again, going back to your book, Ho Chi Minh did not send guerrilla fighters. Ho Chi Minh did not send guerrilla fighters to go and uh, uh, kill uh, people in the White House lawn uh, during the Vietnam War. I mean, that's not... That's not the way normal warfare, in your book even, has it. Um, when you talk about uh, the, the defeats of the United States in Vietnam, Afghanistan, Cambodia, Laos, Nicaragua, don't get a mention, I'd say, Syria or, or Libya either. I mean, hasn't the real war in the United States been at home? I mean, the Civil War only killed, what, three quarters the number of those who died of COVID uh, in, in one year? Um, the... Uh, there's an estimate that 183,000 die every year, according to the University of California, to poverty-linked uh, diseases. And when you talk about the fact that supposed 45 things have got better in the United States, I mean, the United States imprisons more per capita, arguably, than Stalin or Mao ever did. You have living conditions that, as you say in your book, have got better, but those living conditions statistics globally are skewed by China moving 800 million out of poverty in 40 years. Well, there's a lot that you just said, most of which I agree with, but please don't equate our prison system with Stalin. I mean, there's a certain point at which rhetoric gets carried away. But having said that, I think you are Well, I mean, well you do mention race, but I mean, the war is at home, as Martin Luther King uh, Jr. would say, arguably, surely. You say you, there are, uh, we still wrestle with serious racial tensions domestically. But generally, you say, you know, how would we be so successful while failing so often? I mean, many people in the global south and the reason the BRICS summit and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are talking about a new world is 40 million Americans won't be able to eat tonight without federal aid. I do talk a lot about the problems of the United States in my previous book, which was not about military history like this one. And uh, the book is about military history for the modern strategist. So I did stick to my actual uh, focus, which as you say, is already pr pretty broad. But if you now wanna talk about overall grand strategy, I agree with your main point, that if there is anything jeopardizing America's role to help backstop this global order, that for all of its problems has still done a lot for a lot of countries and allowed China to do what it's done successfully and bring so many out of poverty, that yes, we have to heal our problems at home. I mean, that's why a lot of America's debate is turning to that set of questions. It, it, it both encourages me, but it also frightens me because if we get so convinced that we cannot maintain a strong foreign policy, because we have to turn all of our energy and resources inward, we could wind up pulling back from the world in ways that are not helpful either. But I agree with your point. 
the probably the greatest threat to American and perhaps even global long-term stability is domestic, not foreign. Life expectancy is higher now in Cuba than the United States, the official figures. And Cuba is a country that the United States has arguably been at war since uh, 1959. Uh, but the problem is, you may agree with me, but a Brown University estimate was $2 trillion for the war, the, the lost war in Afghanistan, $8 trillion of U.S. public money that could have gone to save those uh, Americans that will be dying this year because of poverty-linked disease. And you didn't want Biden to leave Afghanistan. You didn't want uh, Obama to leave Iraq. You wanted more money spent well, on these wars where clearly the Americans were not welcome. You talk, first of all, about the Global South, and I agree with your focus on that area. But as you know, that's a, a catch-all term for many different regions. You're sitting in a region which, as you know better than I, has been disheartened by American disengagement or apparent or perceived disengagement. I'm not sure about that. You know, the Saudi embassy just opened in Tehran in the past you know, few days. I'm, well, I'm happy about that myself. So I, I don't see this all in narrow, you know, pro-US, pro-China, pro-Saudi, pro-Iran terms. I think that relationship should improve for the betterment of the region. But a lot of, most of the Middle East experts, scholars, and diplomats that I interact with have regretted the rapid American disengagement from the broader Middle East. In Afghanistan, in 2021, we only had about 5,000 US military personnel on the ground. That was not what was producing $8 trillion price tags. Those were the price tags associated with the big efforts of yesteryear. Uh, so yes, an Afghanistan discussion is certainly worth having, and I understand the other point of view, but I did favor trying to preserve what modest amount of hopefulness there was still in Afghanistan. And there wasn't a lot. Hopefulness there certainly was more in than there Afghanistan. Is today. I mean, clearly the Americans were, were, were thrown out. I mean, I, you know, why is it then that when the Americans leave, as you say, get more disengaged, peace starts breaking out with Syria, with Iran, with uh, peace starts breaking out uh, between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Peace starts breaking out in Latin America. Wherever the United States disengages from, peace follows. You actually want a response to that? <laughs> I mean, that's just such a sweeping rhetorical oversimplification. I don't know where to begin. Afghanistan today is a mess. You're right that at least they're not having a civil war, but the degree of impoverishment is striking. We tried disengagement in 1989. You know your history as well as I do. Th that didn't work so well either. That led to mass starvation and ultimately in Afghanistan. We helped, we helped the Afghans defeat the Soviets. Wait, wait, wait. Soviets this was left, when the so United States was supporting what would become Al-Qaeda and helping bin Laden. What do we you disengaged. mean? We disengaged. We didn't in disengage at all. We America, home. this we is home. a bit like in your book when you say the reason you support Iraq war, even retrospectively, Saddam Hussein got, you, we got rid of Saddam Hussein and his family. The Americans brought Saddam Hussein. They were paying him. Uh, I do want to get back to the American Civil War. Ulysses Grant, uh, you use a quote of his, the enemy hath not arm, army enough. Isn't that classically what Russia is doing and what the entire Global South, who are de facto backing Russia, uh, thinking when it comes to the Russia-Ukraine situation? Isn't, isn't, isn't there a parallel there? First of all, 
I don't think the global south is backing Russia. I don't think they have any regard, particularly for you or for me or anybody sitting in comfortable places like we both are right now. The global south makes up its own mind based on its own interests. Well, Lula's been on this happy. program. He's president and, of Brazil, and, and, and he oh, clearly okay. doesn't like the, what the United States did to him. Imran Khan has been on this show. Uh, he, he said it was a Washington coup that overthrew him. We've had pretty major people from the global south on this show. You're making separate points. You, you, your original point was they're supporting Russia, which is nonsense, and you know it. No. So let's just get back. It's but, nonsense, and you know it. What, what, they, what they don't support necessarily is our interpretation of why the war began, and they don't necessarily want the war to be settled on the terms we propose, but they don't like the war, and they're not happy about what Putin's done, most of the ones I know. Now, we're talking about 150 countries, so obviously we can't generalize too far. But my, my central point on this issue is that you are right to say we can't just presume that this war is going to be wound up on terms that we insist upon, or even President Zelensky. What's it going to do with the United States at all? This is a war in Europe. I mean, what, I mean apart from blowing up the Nord Stream, uh, why, why does the United States feel it has anything to do with what's happening in Europe? What's it got to do with Europe? The United States. Have you heard of world? I mean, apart from your orders or your questions to Zelensky as to not use these billions of dollars of much needed public money at home. Well, I think you know the history of World War I and World War II and their origins. And they, they happened when the United States was completely disengaged. And since World War II, Europe has been generally at peace, partly because of NATO and the American engagement. But NATO bombed so Yugoslavia in the 90s. They caused the only war since 1945, and that was a Washington war, wasn't it? To destroy... Are you familiar with the general thrust, the, the general thrust of history? Europe was at war for centuries until roughly 1945. Since that time, Europe has had two substantial wars over an 80-year period. They've both been tragic. I wish they didn't happen. They're too, too many. But the idea that the United States should disengage, to me, just smacks of ignoring okay, well, all The United States was history. at war with itself, arguably, for centuries before, and obviously since independence, as you delineate in your book. One, one obvious question, and I know we're, we're actually in the anniversary, uh, 79 years since the Wola massacre, 50,000 dead. Stefan Bandera, the hero, uh, celebrated in Kiev today. Uh, he was responsible for that in Poland on the 12th of August, 1944. No mention of that in this book. Is there a problem with working at the Brookings Institution knowing that Northrop Grumman spends so much funding your salaries, Lockheed Martin, ExxonMobil, Chevron, Bank of America, Microsoft and Google, Pen Pentagon contractors, or do you feel no influence at all knowing that your salary comes from the arms contractors that benefit from the recycling of the US public money through the dead and wounded of Ukraine? into their bank accounts? Well, if you read my writings over 30 years, you would see I have often opposed weapon systems, often opposed defense budget increases, often opposed wars. And by the way, you misrepresented my thinking on Iraq. I supported the surge. I was agnostic on the invasion. And I said, if there was a way we could avoid it while making sure Saddam did not have WMD in any kind of a verifiable way, we should not have that war. So there are plenty of times where I have not done what the defense industry would have necessarily, by your caricature, have wanted. Uh, and so I guess that's the best I can do at answering that question. We decided not to take money from uh, the governments of the broader Middle East region at a time when we thought that we should be not accepting money from non-democratic regimes. That was a big decision that happened about four years ago, and that was 
in a sense, weighing the same kinds of considerations that you're putting forth, that even though we weren't being told what to say by the Saudis or the Emiratis, there were concerns about perception. There were concerns about potential allegations that we were influenced more than uh, we were. Uh, we certainly always spoke our minds. People wouldn't work here if they couldn't write what they believe, because that's what we all are, is, is stubborn, independent scholars who like to be able to have our own voice. Dr. Michael O'Hanlon, the book's out now. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for the show. We'll be back on Monday ahead of Indian Independence Day with one of India's most famous politicians and intellectuals, Indian National Congress MP Dr. Shashi Tharoor. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Monday.